Lord, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you the gift that we have in the meeting of your people to study your word and to learn more of Jesus. We thank you for the clarity of your word that you and your kindness to us have reached down and given us Christ and displayed who you are for us in him and that you've recorded what you need us to know, what we need to know about you and about the great grace that you've given us to redeem a people unto yourself and recorded it in a book that is clear, that is accessible to all, and that your mission of redeeming a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue is being carried out. And we see how in Acts that mission is continuing to go forward. Lord, would you use this story, this historical account of Philip on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza this morning, that he would, that you would uh, inspire in us a boldness, a confidence in the work of your Spirit in the hearts of men, that it doesn't depend upon our persuasiveness, it doesn't depend upon our um, awesomely awesome faith, but what it depends upon is the work of your Holy Spirit moving in us a willingness and a trust in the sovereignty of God in all things and the mercy of God who redeems people and has no barriers other than their trust in Christ. We thank you for that. We want to glory in that. Worship you for that this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in Acts 8, starting in verse 26. This is one of my favorite accounts in Acts. It seems a little odd and out of place, given what we've gone through so far. Uh, where have we gone through so far, just by way of review? Where have we been? Philip has been in some area up north of Jerusalem, right? He's up north, and he's been breaking down a little bit of a barrier there between Jews and Samaritans. And God has uh, moved among those people. The Holy Spirit has moved in those people. They've, they've had what a lot of scholars call kind of a, a Samaritan Pentecost has gone on. The, the apostles, Peter and John, were there to deal with um, Simon the Magician. We talked about that last week. And um, at the end of that story, after they had uh, addressed this guy wanting to, to learn from them miracles so he can make money, after they addressed that... Um, what happened? What did they do? What does it say at the very end, 25? They go back to Jerusalem. And we talked about last week that they was certainly Peter and John, but also could include Philip. And I think it was included Philip because of what we read next. Um, this story is incredibly significant for the mission and life of the church, both historically and presently. And so, uh, let's read through it. Let's read through it. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. 
And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Ozetus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right. As you think through this passage, who initiates this event? Always a good answer in Sunday school. Could you, an angel of the Lord. You say the Spirit. An angel of the Lord. Another word for angel is... Yes, ultimately, you're right. And all three of you are right, actually. But um, an angel of the Lord, another, another word for angel in Greek is messenger, right? It's a messenger for God, for the Holy Spirit. What? What's that? <laughs> um, I think one thing that we need to really focus on is how often the Holy Spirit is active in this passage. He initiates, go south, Right? He's in Jerusalem, incidentally, which kind of leads me back to the previous comment. I think he went with Peter and John, but that's an assumption. Where does the angel tell Philip to go? And what does Luke tell us about this place? Where does he tell him to go? South to a road. South to a road going to what? Gaza. Gaza. Now, um, Gaza was the last watering hole before you launch into the desert to go to Egypt. Okay? So he's on the road going to Gaza, doesn't know why, which is interesting to me. He's not even going to Gaza, he's going to the road. To the road, right, and just starts walking south. Doesn't know where he's going, he just does it. And what does Luke tell us about this Ethiopian? What do we learn about this guy? He's, a, he's an important official of Candace. Okay? What kind of official? Accountant. He's an accountant, a treasurer. He's a tax man. Important guy. He's an, 
in, in, in our vernacular, this would be the head of the IRS for Ethiopia, right? The gospel is expansive. I'm just going to, it's open to all. Okay, so you have even the head of the IRS being exposed to the gospel. Okay, so you have this official. What else do we know about him? He's from Ethiopia, so that would be in Africa, not Jerusalem, not Samaria, Africa. So he's an Ethiopian. He is a tax guy, CPA, and he's a eunuch. Now, what's significant about that? Close to the queen, and this often was the case. Um, boys who were slaves of, uh, of the government sometimes would be castrated and they would put in charge of harems or finances because they were considered trustworthy in both matters. Um, <laughs> in fact, the term eunuch at that time was somewhat synonymous with treasurer. And so there was some debate among some scholars about this guy, was whether or not he was physically a eunuch or whether or not that was a... A, a, just a title. <clears throat> I tend to think it was physical because he makes the point of saying he was a eunuch and an official, right? So he, he draws a distinction between the two here. So physically, he's been um, um, deformed. Yes? Isn't this an interesting uh, contrast with Leviticus that we just went through? Yes, it is. Because the gospel before was only confined to Israel and, and people couldn't be a eunuch and be a part of, be a priest or whatever. So now the gospel is so expansive. In fact, I think that I think the fact that he's a eunuch, Luke draws out more as more significant than the fact that he's Ethiopian. Because what is this guy? Where's he coming from? Where's he coming from? Worshiping. Worshiping in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. <coughs> he's probably a God fearer, like we'll read about Cornelius in chapter ten, right? Um, he's a God-fearing Gentile. A question. Didn't, doesn't Ethiopia have a high Jewish presence? At the it may have at the time. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It still does. It still does? Okay. A lot of, um, after the kingdom was destroyed, a lot of them went down there to hide. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I'll take your word for it. I haven't, I haven't looked that up. But so that may be where he has contact with some Jews and becomes a, a God-fearing uh, uh, Gentile. So he's going up to Jerusalem to worship. Would he be allowed in the temple? No. No. He's got two strikes, right? He's a Gentile and he's a eunuch. Now there were Gentiles who were eventually allowed in the court of the Gentiles if they were full proselytes, if they converted to Judaism. Um, but not eunuchs. Not eunuchs. Um, the Ethiopia, just by way of background, the Ethiopia here that Luke is referring to is most likely the ancient African kingdom of Moreau. Uh, it was a flourishing culture from 8th century BC until about 4th century AD. And the Old Testament often refers to it as, as Cush. The population, of course, is primarily uh, black, although there may have been a Jewish population there. I, I don't know. Um, it's considered a remote and advanced culture. In the Greco-Roman world, it was considered the end of the earth. It was considered the end of cultural civilization. And so 
they viewed it very curiously and very interested in it. And um, the kings there were viewed as incarnations of a sun god. But the real power was the woman behind the throne, the queen mother, who was known as the Candace. And so this Ethiopian is a treasury guy for the queen mother who runs the country, basically. All the administration falls under her. All right. Um, if you're looking for the, the, the passage that would have made an, a, a eunuch um, barred from the, the temple, Deuteronomy 23.1, it's very vague, but a lot of people interpret it this way. It says something like this. Uh, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You know, it's open to, open to debate there. Very, um, very, you know, we just have to kind of go with what, what tradition tells us on that one. All right. He could visit the temple, but he could never enter it. Yet, here was this one percenter reading a scroll on a chariot going back home. And so Philip... Uh, is, is, is hearing him read this. And that was typical uh, to, to read scrolls out loud because the text is often very close and kind of jumbled. And so in order to keep it straight, they'd read it out loud. That was culturally what they did. Philip, here's what he's reading. And what is he reading? He's reading, and you know it as Isaiah 53. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. How odd. That's coincidence. <coughs> He's reading Isaiah. Why would he be reading Isaiah? Of what interest would Isaiah have to an Ethiopian eunuch heading back home? Why would he read that? Philip just preached through Isaiah. Many, well, just. <laughs> A couple of years ago, what was it, six months ago? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> he went very, very thoroughly through Isaiah. And one of the things that we learned about Isaiah's uh, book is that among all the Old Testament books, Isaiah um, presents God's favor toward Gentiles and his plans for redeeming Gentiles more than any other. Especially of interest to this guy would be Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my, household, in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Helpful passage? He's reading Isaiah. Um, so Philip takes in this scene, and again, I, I have to put myself in his sandals, and I'm thinking, what on earth am I doing here? Why would I be here? And we kind of get the, the, the hint that that's the case because when does he go forward? What does it take for him to actually go forward and approach the chariot? The Spirit says, the only thing that's of interest on the road, go to the chariot. Has to prod him to go. As a Jew, even as a Hellenistic Jew, this is a little radical, right? This is, this is not a Samaritan, even a half-Jew. This is a little radical. All right. What does... Um, what are the two questions that he asks? What are the two questions? Do you understand what you're reading? So Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? And I don't think that that's necessarily a derogatory thing. I mean, they've been having to explain it to Jewish leaders, right? Mm -hmm. So here you have a Gentile reading. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And what does he respond? I understand unless someone... Somebody's got to guide me. How am I going to know what this means unless somebody guides me? And there you have a theme that is consistent throughout Acts. Notice that Philip doesn't say... Well, what's the next question? Let me get to this. What's the next question that they read the passage together? Because you do that when you do your one-to-ones. You read the passage. And you ask what strikes you. And then what does, uh, what does the Ethiopian eunuch ask Philip about this passage? What does he say? Who's it about? Is it about the prophet himself? Is he writing about himself or is he writing about another? And that was a big debate back then. This is not an ignorant question. This is an informed question. It's a big debate. What, who was the suffering servant in Isaiah's Psalms? Was, it, was he writing about himself because the prophet suffered greatly because of, at the hands of, of uh, Jewish leaders? Um, <clears throat> or was it about the nation of Israel itself? Was it about another? And a lot of them argued that it was about the nation of Israel. What does Philip say? It's about Israel? He says, yes, of course, it's about Israel, you know, Israel suffering. Jesus. It's about Jesus. And so you get into one of the huge themes in Acts, which is the interpretation of the Old Testament in light, in the light of Christ, who he is. It doesn't say, if you get Israel right, you get your hermeneutic right. He says, you get Jesus right. You get your hermeneutic right. You understand Scripture in light of who He is and what He's done. It's a tough passage. It's a tough passage to interpret from the Hebrew for Jews in Jerusalem, how much more this Gentile pilgrim. So, he's looking at this passage. And, and what does... What is the description in the passage? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. What are you seeing there? 
What, what would you, as a Christian, tell somebody who's asking you, what does this mean? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. It's, it's a crucifixion. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of his suffering as Messiah. Um, it says, like a lamb before his shear is silent, he opens not his mouth. What is that? As they accused him before Pilate, what did Jesus do? He stood silently. He didn't give a response. He didn't try to defend himself at all. He took it. So you have uh, both the suffering and the injustice of it all right there in this passage that Christ is taking on. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Anything else in this passage you think might have struck the eunuch? Who will relate to his generation? How is he going to be fruitful? He's struck down. There's nobody coming from him. Jesus never married. He never had children. This suffering servant was single, never to produce. Is the prophet talking about himself or another? For his life is taken away from the earth. Does 33 point to the suffering servant being cut off and fruitless? Or does it describe his life taken up and the glory of the resurrection exalted and tragedy, which is followed by a countless generation of disciples? What, what is he talking about? So what does Philip do? How does Luke describe his discussion with the eunuch? He told him the good news about Jesus. He tells him the good news about Jesus. And where does he start? Beginning, beginning with that passage. Um, beginning with Isaiah, he then goes into the gospel. Does that sound like anybody? Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Uh, and what, what story are you thinking of? The end of Luke. After the resurrection. After the resurrection, the end of Luke. The road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses. He opened up all the things in the law and the prophets concerning himself. So Philip's not doing anything new. He's following the pattern laid down by Christ here. All right. So this reading in Isaiah, is it a coincidence, you think? I'm just curious. Again, we see the activity of the Holy Spirit working in this event. So Philip's presenting the gospel. He probably makes the call to action. You have to trust in Jesus. And what's the Ethiopian's response? Look at this. What are the odds? What a coincidence. Here in this desert road, right before we launch off into sand, there's water. And he... He says, what, does, what prevents me from being baptized? And what's the answer to that question? Nothing. Nothing. He has to go through a membership class first. <laughs> membership class, important. In fact, that's what verse 37 would have told us if it were there, for real. Right? I really like that question because the, the knowledge that he had before Philip explained all of this was, 
him being Ethiopian and him being a eunuch would have prevented him. Those are the two answers he knows. Right. After this being explained, he's like, is this... Is this real? Is this real? What? There's, there's got to be something. That's there's not. a catch here somewhere. Philip doesn't say, you've got to get rid of all your money. You've got to join the other 99%. By this timeshare. By this timeshare. No. <laughs> he doesn't say anything. He acts. And his action is one of, there are no barriers. Christ has broken down the barrier between the two men, Gentile and Jew, in his own body. There are no barriers. The, um, the barriers have been broken down in the broken body of Christ. A eunuch, a Gentile, a black man was baptized and received into full membership in the people of Christ. Notice Notice the, the contrast here. He could not enter the temple of Jerusalem. In Christ, he becomes part of the temple in the new Jerusalem. I find that amazing. Isn't that amazing? Now, I'm no math scholar. But when I look at the verses in the passage... I'm seeing something missing. Do you see something missing? Verses 36, and then what would normally follow that would be? I'm just, I'm guessing, spitballing, it'd be 37. Do you see it there? Verse 37? I do. I do. It has a 37. What version do you have? What heretical version do you have? King James. I mean, it's in brackets. It's in brackets. Yes, it is. Why is it in brackets? Because it's awesome. Because it's all later there, there is some textual variation here. And I want to bring this out because the earliest manuscripts of this narrative do not have verse 37. It is believed to be a scribal addition uh, uh, to the text. And so a lot of manuscripts, uh, a lot of English translations will, will take it out and put it as a footnote. And I think that's correct to do. Some people say, well, how can you trust the Bible? It's got all these additions. Well, the depth of manuscripts we have from the earliest ages are so vast, we know where they are. There should be no doubt that we have an accurate copy of the text. We know where these variations are. And so it's kept there, and it's kept there for its historical significance. What we have in, in the um, excised verse 37 is... A, an account of an early baptismal formula that was used in the, in the early Christian church. Uh, the scribe thought it was maybe necessary. This is probably what they did because this is what we do now or whatever. This is what we're assuming. But we have a, a basically a, a confession of the early church that was used at baptism. I find that very cool. So even though it's probably an addition to the original text, it's still valuable. Um, and it's valuable in, in that it's another evidence uh, of a historical evidence that the early Christians believed that Jesus was divine. Because the, the, the verse would have read, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So that's an understanding of the early confession and baptism. 
Um, incidentally, what kind of baptism are we talking about here? Submersion. Just because, you know, we're drawing that out because who we are. It's submersion. Credo. <laughs> and credo. <laughs> it's not a sprinkling. If he'd wanted to be sprinkled, he would have told one of his servants, hey, get me one of the jars out of the back. We'll just kind of do this. They could have done it anywhere. They found a pool of water, and they were baptismoed uh, in, the, in the water there. And all of the eunuch's children, right? Yes, the, that whole household. All right. And this is, again, consistent uh, with, with the New Testament pattern of, of submersion. Okay, they come out of the water. What happens? The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Does that mean that ADD just got distracted? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think this is an ADD reference. Uh, what's going on here? Something a little strange. He just vanishes. He gets whisked. And where does he get whisked to? And that's north of Jerusalem. So the opposite of where he was. Kind of in the area where he was to begin with in, in, uh, the, with the Samaritans, right? And he ends up, it says, in Caesarea. And we'll see him there again at the end of the book um, with four daughters that prophesy. So we know he kind of settled down in Caesarea, which was a town, a city up north. And what does the eunuch do? He's rejoicing. And again, we've seen that again and again as Luke's confirmation of the action of the Holy Spirit in someone's heart when they, there's much joy in that city we saw in the city of Samaria. All right. This is a radical step in the mission of the church. The witness was to a Gentile who had no hope of being accepted in Judaism because of his physical status as a eunuch. It was a radical step for a Jew... Even Hellenistic Jew like Philip, we said. But who's the real radical here? Who's the real radical? Because the Ethiopian in a way, you say. Well, he was very, uh, he was obviously very, um, a very learned man mm -hmm. because he would have had to be reading in Hebrew? Or it's Greek, probably. Okay. Yeah, it, it most likely it's Greek. Have been his native language. Right, it wouldn't have been his native language. He would have been reading the Bible in a different language, going to a different place, and he shows a great amount of humility mm. towards Philip, who probably wasn't as learned right. <laughs> as he was. Right. Um, it's interesting how God must have worked out their communication as well. Well, I would assume they'd be speaking in Greek, but that's just me. Um, the, the text that he's quoting from is actually from the Septuagint, uh, from the Greek, the Greek Old Testament. So there, there was a common language there. He's searching the Scripture. He's intent on learning from the Scripture while he's traveling in his private jet down, down south. Um, he's, he is, again, we see the elevation of, the importance of, reading the Bible, understanding who it's about, and working through it. Um, I'd also point out that the real radical here, although all parties are kind of on edge, here is the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, there's no time here between pushing them to Samaria to at least giving them a foretaste of the completion of the church's mission to the ends of the earth, right? This is the, this is the frontier of missions. And Philip is spearheading both parts of that with Samaritans and then now to Africa. Later church fathers claim that the unit became a missionary to Ethiopia. Maybe. Maybe that's true. Uh, he certainly, I would think, would have been a seed toward that effort in, in Ethiopia. We have uh, more concrete evidence that um, in the Nubian area of Africa, uh, there was evangelization that began around the 4th century. And it, it's kind of nice to think that he kind of started that. I, we don't know. What is significant, though, is that this is the first converted Christian foreigner in Acts. He's African. He's not European. That comes later with Paul. But he's the first foreign convert. You could even say that the mission began there long before Paul made it to Europe. So the celebrity guys from the patristic era, where they come from? Athanasius. Augustine. They're all Northern African guys. All right. In this event, again, we have the foretaste of the completion of the marching orders from Jesus in Acts 1.8. This, along with the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10, marks a major advance in the Christian mission. And it also demonstrates the heightened activity of the Holy Spirit in these events. We see it. Luke is very clear about drawing out. This is a coincidence. Well, it's the Holy Spirit working and bringing about the conversion of these men. And He's still doing it. And He's still doing it through you. How often do we get a little shut down because, ooh, maybe this isn't the right time. Maybe this isn't the right conversation. Or, or um, gosh, this would be costly at work, costly at school, costly at family. We're placed in positions not by accident. We're placed in circumstances not by accident. Use wisdom, but at the same time, our focus should be, he's placed me here for a reason. And that it depends upon him, not my persuasiveness, not my catchy turn of phrase. It depends upon the Holy Spirit moving in the heart, changing someone from um, a doubter, a critic, to someone who is convinced of the truth of the gospel. You can't flip that switch. It's only by work of the Holy Spirit that that happens. And you see it. You see it here. He's prepped the way already. The guy, I mean, it's low-hanging fruit with this guy. He's on the, the chariot reading Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit has already prepped the work and prepared the heart. So he's still doing it. And that's why as we're studying Revelation and kind of where the end is going, I'm very optimistic. 
I'm very optimistic. Because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on who He is and what He's done for us in Christ. Any other, uh, any other thoughts? Any other comments? How does this differ from, uh, I, I know we're not getting it, Cornelius, when he has the, the uh, that's Peter, who has the vision of all the different animals that come down, and then Cornelius, I think, is the Roman guy. Right. So I always thought him, that he was the first convert, but I guess um, he was the first one that didn't become Jewish. N- no. I mean, he didn't come, become, the Ethiopian didn't become Jewish either. Well, he was God-fearer. And he couldn't go in the temple. Cornelius was also a God-fearing Gentile. They're both kind of in the same mold. They're just from different regions of the world. But yeah, they're both God-fearing. They're both wanting to be, or at least have a lot of respect for uh, Judaism and the God, of the, uh, the God of Israel. But they're either have, can't come in because of physical issues, or they're not, they just haven't made that step toward being a full proselyte or full convert to Judaism. So, but they're both God-fearers. They're both familiar with the Jewish scriptures. They're both wanting to know more. And, and when we get to chapter 10, we'll see another incidence where the Holy Spirit is active, where Cornelius is moving. I want to tell me, bring, bring Peter to me, right? It's interesting to me in that story, and we'll get there in chapter 10, it's interesting to me the difference in Philip and Peter at that juncture. Philip is like, oh, wait a minute, what's this? And the Holy Spirit says, go to the chariot. Okay, he goes, what you reading? You know, With Peter, it takes him going into a trance to see a net drop down from heaven with pigs and other unclean animals in the net, and Jesus says, rise up and eat. Don't call what I have called clean, unclean. That's a little bit more of a significant prodding than you see with, um, with Philip, even though it still took a prodding with Philip. Now, with Paul, it takes a little more. And we'll see that next time. Um, anyway. Did you post that meme this week? I did. Twice. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. Is there any significance to verse 35? After they've already been talking, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, just the phrase, Then Philip opened his mouth. Mm-hmm. Is there any I, You know, I don't know. I didn't see anything in, uh, significant of that, but I mean, it could reference again the, the idea of the prophetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, a turn of phrase that's often used of, the, of prophets giving um, news from God. Mm-hmm. But I'm. I don't. I didn't see anything significant on that, but it certainly was different than him closing his mouth, wondering what I'm doing here, right? So he he took the step of actually proclaiming the gospel. Do we know the time frame between the crucifixion and this this story, approximately? I mean, would would the as far as just common knowledge, I guess, would the eunuch have heard about? Before this, this Jesus guy. I mean, do we know? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I, I think um, based on the based on what the smart guys tell us about the time frame in Jerusalem it was around five years that they were in that the, the focus of Acts is in Jerusalem. Okay. And then um, at least within ten, 
they were in Samaria, and then this seems to happen pretty pretty closely to the time that Philip was in Samaria. So I'm saying within a decade, okay. I think is a safe bet. I haven't been here long enough to see a baptism here. Here, mm. I've seen a baptism. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Uh, not here yet. Uh, I was curious, what is this church's view on the administration of baptism? Because I always see the argument on immediate versus new members classes, some type of something to make sure and all this kind of stuff to kind of avoid accidentally baptizing someone who's made a false profession. You know, you see in Acts the 3,000, they believed and were baptized. Mm -hmm. You see him immediately baptized. I've always heard the debate. I was curious where this church stands on the administration of baptism in the immediacy or through, I know we have the new members class here. Yeah. Um, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, that might be a little little much for what we're doing this morning, but I, I, I think a lot of it rests on um, at least uh, a stop, look, and listen of where the person is. Uh, I know we're, we're um, very, um, we, we want to be very careful, especially with children, where they are and, and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of question that goes on there. I know when when my kids were baptized, um, you know, we questioned them pretty thoroughly. In fact, Audrey got mad at me. <laughs> Dad, you know, <laughs> and okay, you know, she's going to keep, and, and, I, and I actually put her off for months. Well, Emma, it was years. Yeah, with them she it was, was years. She was five when she understood what the gospel right. was and, and seemed to accept Jesus as her savior, but we as parents let her come to the point uh, we had talked about baptism but mm -hmm. we let her come to that point individually yeah so that, that's our take on it yeah no well, that's personal i don't know that's for the whole that's, church yeah that's our personal take on it yeah that's that a child needs to be of the point that they understand what they're doing basically we believe in letting it build to a boiling pitch of desire <laughs> <laughs> and once there's that drive toward obedience we like to say, okay, that same craziness that you took, you know, forcing me to baptize you, let's put that toward cleaning your room and toward other acts of obedience to display the glory of God. No, no but we, we just, just, I'll speak personally. We, we, it's a matter of conscience with us about where the kid is and where, um, if someone makes a profession and, and there's a, you know, I don't, I don't see a, a reason to, to hold back. Um, if, if it's like this guy, what's going to prevent me from being baptized? I don't think that there's a policy here at the church that says you've got to go through a new member's class. You've got to visit with an elder for, you know, at least four lunches that you purchase, um, you know, for a month. Um, not that we're opposed to that. You understand? We like lunches. But, um, but that's not, I don't think, a policy of the church. So we probably went into it even though I was saying let's not go so into it's more it. more pastoral discretion. I think so. I think so. I mean, that's at least the way I've seen it work so far. I, maybe we need to visit that as a policy determination, but I don't, just one of those, one of those kind of things. Yeah. Also, it doesn't seem like there's a sweeping need for immediate baptism. I mean, I don't see people, you know, yeah. altar Yeah, we don't, we don't do a lot. We, in fact, I don't think we do any altar calls. We have that awkward thing at the end of the service where we're standing response where everybody's like, okay, we're going to sing. And if people are trying to join, they don't know if that's when they should go or they should not. It's kind of an awkward thing. 
Yeah, I know. We, we like to keep it. It's a secret society here. It really is. Voting membership is a secret society. So, any, anything else? It's, it's a joke. It's not a secret society. And she's sitting there like, what is going on here? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just an administrative problem that we have here about when to look down. <laughs> How do you how do you set up your how do you set up your liturgy to allow new people to come down? And <laughs> okay, let's pray. God, I love this story. I love this story because of the clear picture that you give us in this conversion that Christ has broken down that dividing wall. That he has become he has taken in himself the two men and made them one as Paul says in Ephesians. And that in Him, there are no barriers. There is no division. There's no bar to entry. The only thing that you require is our trust in the Lordship and saving power of Christ. We should be shouting that every day. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, in our apathy, in our weakness, in our fear, in our um, disbelief that you actually change the hearts of men, would you help us increase our faith and our boldness in proclaiming, be reconciled to God through the finished work of Christ? Would you draw us together, closer, unified, without barriers? The church is the most unique organization on the planet because it's the one founded by Christ himself. Where one people, regardless of nation, tongue, origin, tribe, none of that matters. We make that matter. But that doesn't matter to you. And so we pray for Again, a heart after your heart that prizes what you've done in your people through Christ. Be with us this morning as Philip walks us through that a little further in Revelation. Would you be with him? Let him speak what the church needs to hear this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, thank you guys for coming. Good job,